In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, Jesus Christ is called the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, the, the word Amen uh, and the expression faithful and true witness mean basically the same thing. He is the Amen, that is to say, the faithful and true witness. But what about this expression, the beginning of God's creation, or as it is in some translations, the beginning of the creation of God? You know, some have seized that verse and claimed that Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate state was a created being. He's the beginning of God's creation. Uh, they say, you find, for example, the, the Watchtower Society, I think, has used this and other passages similar to it to say that Christ, the Logos, the pre-incarnate Christ, was in fact created, and he was the first thing God created, and then through him, the rest of the creation took place. Others say, no, he's the beginning of God's creation in the sense that he is the beginner of God's creation. Now, on both of these points, I think there's some problems with translation. I think there's some problems with, uh, well, theologically, on the first one, it is very clear that the Logos of John 1.1 was not a created being. We know this because we're told that all things were made through him and that without him, nothing that was made was made. Meaning that anything that was a part of creation had to have him present to do it. So he, couldn't, he himself couldn't be part of creation. So it's very clear that he, the Logos in John 1, is on the creator side of the creator-creature dichotomy or distinction. On the second point, well, that seems plausible in light of John 1.1 and other passages, but I submit that the expression or the title, beginning of God's creation, refers to something entirely different. Perhaps we're looking in the wrong direction. If we're looking back at the original creation, perhaps we're looking in the wrong place uh, to understand what this particular title means. I will explain by what I mean by that a little bit later. Well, let's begin the story in the first century A.D. A little bit of context here. From all appearances, God had abandoned the nation, the, the nation of Israel, as it was known in the land of promise, or in this, particularly in, in Jerusalem and in Judea. It, it from just from the appearances of things you look around you see the Romans are in charge you look around and you see that the prophetic voice had basically ceased oh there were a few prophets and would-be prophets perhaps but as far as the prophetic voice at was as it had been known in bygone days it wasn't there anymore it seemed that God was not necessarily present in the temple but a lot of corrupt people were it had become, even though it was supposed to be the house of God, it had become uh, more or less a den of thieves. And corruption extended into the religious bodies of that time, including, including the Sanhedrin, which was the legislative body uh, of that time. And again, while there may have been a prophet or two here or there, or a would-be prophet, the prophetic voice, as it was known in past times, had ceased until until a certain man described as a reed shaken in the wilderness arrived on the scene. Of course, he was John the Baptist, who was a prophet. He was, as Jesus says, he, Jesus informs us that this was the one prophesied by Malachi. This is the prophesied Elijah to come. He, he prepared the way and preceded the coming of Messiah. Let's take up his story in uh, Matthew chapter 3. 
Matthew chapter 3, and of course, uh, his ministry was not an end in itself. It had a purpose, as I said, as, and as Malachi's prophecy mentions, uh, he was to prepare the way before the coming of another. And of course, that other was the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 3, let's begin in verse 1. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Now, what, what, is this, what is this talking about here? Why does he even bother to put this in here, what his garment was? Now, a garment of camel's hair. It seems that I heard someplace that camel's hair garments were very expensive. If I, did I hear that from some uh, in times past that uh, this was an, probably an expensive garment? It, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. You know, it's the same thing that uh, desert Bedouins to this very day wear. And they, didn't, they don't order that from Amazon.com, you can rest assured. But no, he wore camels. I think the reason this is put here is because of Second Kings chapter 1 and verse 8. He's establishing a link to the person over in Second Kings 1 verse 8, Elijah the Tishbite. We're told that he wore a garment of hair and a leather belt. So why do you think Matthew uh, includes this description here concerning John the Baptist? No doubt it's because he's establishing a link between John's ministry and the ministry of Elijah. Elsewhere, we see the name Elijah come up. It's in Malachi's prophecy, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. So obviously that connection is here. He goes on to say then in verse, uh, the next verse, verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him. Now, I want you to notice this. This was not a little thing. This was not in some backroom closet someplace. This is not something that attracted a tiny handful. It says all Judea and all the region about the Jordan. It doesn't mean every individual, but it does mean he got a lot of attention and a lot of people were coming out to see him and to be baptized by him. So he drew attention, and not only did he draw the attention of the ordinary people, he drew the attention of some others as well. Well, first of all, it goes on to say, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So here there was a movement going on, a restoration movement. This is no doubt what it means. He will come and restore all things. doesn't mean, mean uh, restore uh, you know, the temple. It doesn't mean restore everything, but restore. There, there's a restoration movement uh, going on here, and he's bringing the people back to their God. And in all of this is a part of his ministry of preparing the way before the Messiah who is to come. Well, when it, now, as I said, some other people showed up well that might be, or as well that might be a little bit of a surprise. It says, but when he saw many, not a few, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, or as some translations say, coming to his baptism, whether or not they were there to be baptized, I'm not sure about that, but anyway, they were there. They were showing up. They were turning out. Uh, obviously, they had at least some curiosity about what was going on there. So when he saw them coming to the baptism, he said to them, 
You brood of vipers. I don't know if that's the best way to talk to your congregation, but John did. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? No, he, he knew basically what they were. He knew about the corruption that existed in Judea and in Jerusalem and extended right into the religious leader culture of that day. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now there's a little message in there. You may miss it when you read it at first glance. God is able to raise up from these stones children to Abraham. Now, of course, these people, that's the way they looked at things. They put emphasis on the fact that they were Abraham's kids. Hey, we came from Abraham, from Isaac, and to Jacob. We're the chosen people. And John informs them that God can raise up children to Abraham from these stones. You see the message that's in there? There's a message. What do you think he can do with Romans and Greeks and the uncircumcised? He can make Abraham's children out of them, too. And that, that fact becomes, becomes important to uh, where we're going with today's sermon. So he's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Uh, this is very important here to, for purposes of interpreting a statement that he's about to make concerning baptism. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now you hear people today talking about wanting that fire baptism. I don't. I don't want that. He just has told us basically what it is, and he continues to tell us what it is in the next couple of verses. You remember he says, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There's your baptism of fire. And what he's saying is that this one coming after me, obviously the Messiah, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, that's an interesting thing there as well, something only a prophet could know. How could someone know that the Davidic monarch, monarch that they were looking for, how is it that they could know that he would be the distributor of the Spirit? That must have come by divine revelation. Who expected that? But he says he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then he goes on to explain that. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's your baptism of fire right there, and that's one you don't want. Don't want that at all. So what this is telling us is that as Lord, Jesus baptizes with the Spirit, and he executes the last judgment. Now, I would say that there's another meaning here as well. You know, there are many judgments have taken place through history. You see, look back at the history of ancient Israel. You see uh, days of visitation, days of the Lord that occurred then when God visited his people and brought judgment. Well, he brought one in A.D. 66 through 70 as well with the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. So I think probably that's in the mix here as well, as he's saying, who warned you from this, uh, from this corrupt generation? So the point, nevertheless, is that Jesus Christ, the one who comes after John the Baptist, will baptize with the Spirit, and also he is the one who executes the last judgment. So that's, that's a lot more responsibility than 
what you might expect from reading the, the scriptures about the coming of a Davidic monarch. Then Jesus came, in verse uh, there's 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now here's the one who is without sin, and he's coming to this baptism. Baptism for what? For people who are doing what? Repenting of their sins. People are coming and confessing their sins, and here comes Jesus who is without sin and says, I want you to baptize me, John. And naturally you know what John does. He protests. John would, have, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? I think you can understand that, can't you? I, I would have certainly have said the same thing that I known, as John did, who this was. But Jesus answered him, let it, let it so now, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, at this point, I'd like to ask, why in the world did Jesus, why was he baptized? This is a question that has stumped many people through the centuries. Why would Jesus be baptized to begin with? Well, it says to fulfill all righteousness, and I think that gives us a clue. You know, he is showing his solidarity with sinners. He's demonstrating his solidarity with sinners by symbolizing, as he says elsewhere, the baptism with which he will be baptized. Talking about the end of his life, his crucifixion, of course, followed by his resurrection. But he had a baptism with which to be baptized, and it is through that that we are able to stand before God and be declared righteous. So he shows solidarity with the people, with sinners. People are coming there and confessing their sins and pointing to the baptism with which he will be baptized, which is the means of righteousness for us. So he consented. It says that the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit. He probably means John the Baptist. I think it was not just for Jesus' benefit that the Spirit would be visibly seen uh, descending upon him, but this was a witness as to who this was. So John the Baptist, and maybe others as well, saw this. It says he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. This will, uh, we'll look at that again later because it, <clears throat> uh, you can link this with some other things that happened in the Old Testament, and I think you can see that the link is meaningful. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now think about this. Think about this. Here, the prophetic voice had ceased. It seems that God had departed from the people, from the nation. He wasn't to be found. People looked for the coming of Messiah. They sought after it, hoped for it. But it seemed, it would have seemed to many that God had abandoned the nation because the prophetic voice had ceased, it was not like it was in old times. Until John shows up, he draws a lot of attention. And now then, in the midst of John's ministry, when he baptizes Jesus, the Spirit is seen visibly descending upon Jesus. I don't know who all saw it. And a voice from heaven is heard. Wow. God is speaking now, isn't he? Not just through the voice of a prophet, but the voice coming from heaven. So that, if that's not a powerful message there, showing the people, at least those who were there, 
that indeed God has not abandoned his own. And God is still dealing with these people. And then, of course, we go on. This, well, I might mention in passing that this draws from a number of things. Let's go back to, hold, hold your place there. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, this clearly draws from the prophecy in Isaiah 11. Uh, if you go back there, if you begin in chapter 10 and verse 33, it says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lock the boughs with terrifying power. The great in, higher, in, in height will be hewn down. He's talking about peoples and nations. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. You can imagine God doing that in bringing nations or bringing his judgment upon nations. And Lebanon will fall by the, by the majestic one. Now, with that context, read the next verse. Chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. The stump of Jesse. You know, God has gone through the forest, cutting down all the trees. And there's the stump of Jesse. You know, it, what does that say? Well, who is Jesse, by the way? I think you know who that is. It's the father of David. It, it would seem, it would seem when you see the stump of Jesse there, that uh, the kingdom of David has come to an end. The Davidic monarchy has come to an end. But it says a shoot comes up from the stump of Jesse, so there is hope after all. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And this is, uh, this is what we just read back in uh, Matthew chapter 3. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. We could go on, but let me get on down to the bottom line. This is the end of the matter. This is where it all leads. Verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So when the Spirit descended visibly upon Jesus, when the voice was heard from heaven, the people who were aware of it knew that that time had come. This was the shoot that had come forth from the stump of, De of Jesse, and this was the one who would usher in that scenario that we just read back in Isaiah chapter 11. Now, of course, it didn't turn out the way they expected it to. Uh, they, they would have had it sooner, but uh, nevertheless, there were, a few, some surprises. there were some surprises along the way. But nevertheless, this was, it was very clear that it, there was a sense in which the, this, this was the, the inbreaking of the Messianic kingdom was taking place. It, there was a sense. Not, it wasn't the final sense, but there was... Uh, this was what was going on, and they would have immediately recognized it. Also, this passage, we won't turn there, but it draws from Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant, uh, especially this part about uh, uh, his baptism, looking forward to uh, the baptism with which he would be baptized. That's linked to Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. So if you want to look that up sometime, like I said, we won't go there today. 
Now, it's something interesting in the next chapter that uh, I find very interesting, especially the way it's worded in Mark's gospel. But here in Matthew, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus was led up. But have you ever read in Mark's gospel, Mark 1 and verse 12, it says that the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And it's because of passages like this that many theologians have worked out a spirit Christology where they point out that Jesus was, as some have said, a man, the man of the Spirit. The Spirit dominated in his ministry. You see that everywhere in all the things he did. The Spirit uh, was, uh, well, it dominated his ministry. See, it was not only just, it wasn't, in other words, it wasn't just a, a kind of a nudging or, or a, uh, you know, I, I have a sense that maybe the Spirit wants me to go out into the wilderness. No, the Spirit drove him there. It guided him. It was clear, a clear message. And so he went there. Now, this too is interesting. He went into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So what we see in chapter 3, what we see in chapter 3 is the new David. Jesus is the new David. That becomes clear because he is the one the Spirit descends upon just as the, the Spirit was prophesied to descend, to descend upon uh, the root, or I should say the, the shoot that comes up out of the stump of, of Jesse. So this, was, this, is, this is clearly linking him to the Davidic monarch who is to come. In chapter 4, you see that Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. That corresponds to, and he's tested in the wilderness just as Israel was tested 40 years. You see the link there. Israel tested 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus did not fail. Israel did. So who is Jesus? You know, back in the servant songs, uh, the servant is actually called Israel. Israel, the redeemer of Israel. Jesus is the new Israel. He's the new David in chapter 3, chapter 4, the temptation in the wilderness, 40 days, the new, uh, the new Israel. And then in, chapter, in chapters 5 through 7, we're not going to take the time to read this, but this is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, who was that went up into the mount, received the law? Here you have Jesus going up into the mount, expounding the law. He's the new Moses. So you, you see all of these, all of these uh, things being reflected in the story as Matthew puts it together. So Jesus is the new David, the new Israel, the new Moses. But there's something else, something else. You know, all of those things are linked with the nation of Israel, aren't they? David, Israel, Moses. But there's something else. We're going to see that he is the new Adam, meaning he's the new humanity. Jesus, who is, is the one, as we have seen, who is uniquely endowed with the Spirit of God, the Spirit descends as a dove upon him, and that reminds us, it is reminiscent of another famous scripture in what we call the Old Testament. You can probably guess it. It's Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Let's take a look at that briefly. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Hovering, hovering with outstretched wings like an eagle, perhaps. Reminiscent of what happens to Jesus when 
as a dove the Spirit descends upon him. But what do you see here in the Genesis narrative? The the Spirit hovers like an eagle over the primordial abyss. But why? What's, what's, What's it telling us here? It is telling us that God is about to create a habitation for human beings. That's what, it's, that's what this is about. You have this watery abyss. You have this, you know, just the water world, as it were. And uh, it's not a habitation for human beings. So the next six days, the six days of Genesis chapter 1, God exercises dominion over his creation. Then on the sixth day, he makes a creature in his own image after his own likeness, and he gives that creature, and by that I mean a... a, a not just the male, but the male and the female, gives them dominion. He, in other words, he shares his own dominion with humanity. In the six days, you see him exercising dominion over creation. That's what the, the hovering spirit is all about. The spirit is about to do something. That's God in action, about to do something and bring about these changes in the earth and preparing this habitation for humanity. And then once it's prepared and once humanity is on the scene, He gives humanity, not only makes humanity in his image and after his likeness, showing a special relationship with himself, but gives them dominion, which he owns, which belongs belongs to him. Now, you know the story. A certain creature called the serpent shows up, and humanity, rather than exercise its God-given dominion over the serpent, essentially, you might say, hands it over to the serpent by doing what the serpent wants instead of what God wants. So if God gives you dominion, and he, says, and he tells you how to exercise it, and then you abuse it, what are you doing? You obey the voice of one who as you do something else, then you're basically handing dominion over to that that person, aren't you? And that's what Adam and Eve did. They're giving the serpent dominion over themselves. And, of course, the penalty for that was in the day that you do this, God said, you shall surely die. It doesn't mean that they would drop dead that very day. Uh, What it does mean that they would surely die, though, from that day forward. They would would definitely die. So you, you, see, you see the problem there. Now, the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that's seen here in Genesis 1 hovering over the watery abyss, the Spirit of God, the same Spirit, drove Jesus into the wilderness to face the same tempter. But Jesus, the new Adam, did not succumb to the tempter as the first Adam did. From there he went out in the power of the Spirit and he exercised dominion over creation. You ever thought of it that way? First of all, he faces the tempter just like the original Adam did. But he prevails. He does not hand over dominion, as it were, to the devil. But he went out after that and he began exercising dominion over creation. What do I mean? Well, he opened the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. He calmed the storm, he walked on water, he raised the dead, and he cast out demons. In one case, he cast out a whole demon, a whole, I should say a whole legion of demons with a single command. You know, that's something the exorcists couldn't do with all their rituals and their elaborate prayers and all the things that they would do in trying to cast out demons. Jesus commands demons to leave and they leave. 
So he exercises dominion in a way that no prophet before him had ever exercised dominion. He was the new Adam, just as he was not, he was the new David, the new Moses, the new Israel. All of these converge into this one person who is now the new Adam, the new humanity, which means, which means he is the beginning of the new creation. That's what I believe the expression means, beginning, when he says that he is the beginning of the creation of God. It's not talking about the old creation at all. It's talking about the exalted Christ being the beginning of the new creation. He took dominion back. And now then, if you are in him, meaning you are in Christ, then you are a part of the new creation. No, you don't experience the fullness of it yet, but you are a part of it. That's exactly what Paul means in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 when he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation or a new creature. To be translated either way. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So you have the old creation back there. That's very important. It tells us a lot about uh, where we all came from and how, why things are as they are. But, you know, there's a new, it, it was not an end in itself. It points to a new creation, and that's what Jesus Christ is all about, the new creation. He's the beginning of the new creation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Christ is compared directly with Adam. It's very clear that uh, the link is made there. There's no question about it. In fact, Adam is called the first man Adam, and Christ is called the last Adam there. And that's talking about... In, in context, he's talking about the resurrection of the dead, how uh, <clears throat> death came into the world through Adam, through the first Adam, and it is through the last man, Adam, that uh, uh, eternal life is given. In other words, he gains back what Adam lost. Death entered the picture through the first Adam, now immortality and life through the last Adam. Now, with all, we, like I said, we won't go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but I've said before, as some people speculate on what, what this means, this expression, death. You know, Adam introduced death. And many people conclude, I used to think this way, that what that's talking about is spiritual death. When Adam sinned, then uh, he didn't drop dead, literally, but he spiritually died. And, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people today, Calvinists and many others, Augustinians of every stripe, uh, believe that uh, we're all born dead spiritually, and that's what that refers to. Well, there may be elements of truth within that. Certainly, we we're lacking spiritually. All of us are. Uh, certainly, we are. We could be described through many, many metaphors. We're spiritually sick, spiritually imprisoned, and even spiritually dead. And and we could use those metaphors. They're all in the scripture. However, I don't think that's what he has in mind because in 1 Corinthians 15, when he talks about death, the death that entered the picture through Adam's sin, he, he, ta he makes it very clear that the death he's talking about is one that can only be cured by a resurrection. That's not just spiritual death, is it? Or something that happens internally. That's something that happens to you bodily. And I think the same is true of Romans chapter 5. I'm going to close with that scripture, Romans chapter 5, because it, it contains some information, I think, that is often misunderstood. I think people read something out of this that uh, Paul is not saying at all. But in Romans chapter 5, let's begin the account in verse 12, where he uses the same Adam Christology, 
makes the comparison between Adam and Christ. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Now, what does he mean here? Death spread to all men because all sin. Now, the typical interpretation is that all of us were in Adam at the time Adam sinned. We were, figuratively speaking, we were in Adam. That simply means that we all came from him, didn't we? Even Eve came from Adam. So uh, we all were in Adam at some point. That doesn't mean we were personally there, but everything that you are was there. We were in Adam in in, uh, that sense. And so when Adam sinned, all humanity sinned because Adam was all humanity, Adam and Eve. When they sinned, all humanity sinned. So they were all humanity. So in a matter of speaking, this is one of those verses that's similar to the one in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 9. You remember what that says about Levi being in the loins of Abraham? It's one of those, it's one of those uh, as it were, or in a manner of speaking, or in effect verses. It's not something you take in the full literal sense. Yeah. In, in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 9, we're told that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek while he was still in the loins of his father Abraham. Now, you know he was not ever literally in the loins of Abraham, and he did not pay tithes to, uh, to Melchizedek. You understand the kind of language that's being used there, don't you? That the, you understand that this is a, an, one of those as it were or in effect. So in effect, you know, Abraham... The point there is that Abraham, the, the, one, the lesser gives tithes to the greater. And since Levi was, as it were, in the loins of Abraham, and he, were, he was, as it were, paying tithes to Melchizedek, then he too, Levi, is a lesser kind of priest than Melchizedek. So this is that kind of language. And I think you see the same thing in chapter 5 of Romans, where Paul is saying here, let me read this again, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam as it were. In effect, we didn't actually sin in Adam. We weren't actually in Adam. You understand the meaning here? Am I clear on that? Am I being clear? Okay. But sometimes I don't know when when people are sitting there looking like, huh? (laughs) So this is one of those type of, I, I believe... I believe, unlike the Calvinists who look at this and say, yep, yep, that's, that's federal headship right there. God looks down at those newborn little babies and he sees a sinner. That's the way God looks at a newborn, just a dirty, rotten sinner. So, well, what did I do? Well, you ate from the fruit of the tree. You're, you, Adam did, so you're guilty too. That's, you know, that's such nonsense. That's such nonsense. And I think it comes from misreading a text like this. He goes on to say in verse 13, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Now, again, this is one of those, as it were, in effect, type of statements. But sin is not counted where there's no law. Okay, sin is in the world. The law hasn't been given yet. No law, so the sin is not counted. Okay? No, we know that, that there were, God has always had moral laws in place. But that's not, okay, we, we don't want to miss the point here. And then he says in verse 14, Yet, yet, 
death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even though sins weren't being accounted, let me, let me put it this way. If you have no awareness of a law of God, let's say, take, for example, if somebody over in some foreign land never has looked at the Bible, never read a word of it, he may have some awareness of certain moral principles, but he certainly has never heard of the Sabbath. Doesn't know that there's a holy day. Do you think that when he goes out and works on Saturday morning that God is saying, one day you're going to answer for that, mister? No, of course not. The guy is in ignorance. And so the same principle is here, where there's no law or where there's no awareness of law, then it's different from someone who, like Adam, knew that he was not supposed to take of the, tr the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, but did anyway, then that's, a different, that's a, a different type of sin, isn't it? That's very different. And if he hadn't known, if God hadn't told him, that he wouldn't have held him accountable for that. You understand what I'm saying here? And this is what's in the backdrop here of what Paul is saying. He says, yet death, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, you know, in effect, we all sinned in Adam for this reason. When Adam sinned, what happened to him? He was driven from the Garden of Eden which means he had no more access to the tree of life, which means you and I and all humanity would not have access to the tree of life. So the, the uh, Adam's sin did affect all humankind. Death entered the picture, and people have died ever since then. No access to the tree of life. And so in effect, not in actual fact, but in effect, we were all sinners in the Garden of Eden, weren't we? Because we were all in Adam. We sinned with him. In effect, not in actual fact. As a, ma as a way of speaking, just a, a manner of speaking. But the point is here, he's leading to, is he was, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. He's going to explain what he means here and how that is so. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. You see what he's saying? Okay, here, here's basically what he's saying. Adam's one trespass resulted in death for all humankind, all Adam's progeny. That's a huge penalty, isn't it? That's big. And yet, after the time of Adam, come to the time of Moses, God gives his law. And what did the law do? Well, it straightened people out, right? <laughs> no, no. It made them aware of what they were, what the sinners they were, and they kept sinning. So Adam's transgression, or transgressions like Adam's, in other words, people having a, an awareness of God's standards, and they broke those standards anyway, as Adam did. So Adam, the transgressions like Adam's were multiplied. There have been millions and billions of transgressions that were the same as Adam's as far as their, their effects. 
And yet, and yet, that one righteous act of the last Adam is capable of covering all of that and reconciling all of us to God. That's the extent of the atonement. That's what he's saying here. Let's read it. He says, uh, verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. In other words, potentially. doesn't mean that all men are automatically justified. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass. Or that was the effect. When the law came, it didn't change human hearts. They remained the same. The law gave them an awareness of God's standards. Now they know what it is to commit sin. And what happens? Oh, they, things get worse. Now they know what they are. That's his point here. The law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So things after Adam didn't get better, they got worse. Trespasses were increased. The law came. It did not remedy the situation. It only resulted in people further sinning, in amplifying the problem, and, in, and then through this one man's righteous act, action, through his one man, this one man's act, his coming in the flesh, his dying, through his one righteous act, then we all potentially, in spite of the enormity of all of that sin, can be reconciled with God. So that shows how much more powerful the effects of the work of the second Adam are than the effects of the first Adam. You think, it's, you think it's powerful that all of us were affected in that way by Adam's one sin. That is, it is powerful. But the second Adam is far more powerful. The second Adam, as I said earlier, Jesus is not only the new David, the new Moses, and the new Israel. He is also the new Adam, the new humanity. And by your being joined to him, it's called being in Christ, you're part of that new humanity. And I say that's something that deserves celebrating. That's something that deserves thinking about and praising God over. That is a marvelous and wonderful truth, and I think we can all thank God for it.